This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Interviews. Atish Taseer is a British writer and journalist. Born to Indian journalist Tavleen Singh and late Pakistani politician Salman Taseer, Atish has held the status of an overseas citizen of India until it was revoked by the Modi government early last month. In a tweet, Home Ministry spokesperson said that Atish was guilty of concealing the fact that his late father was of Pakistani origin and was thus ineligible to hold an OCI card. Atish has stated that this was a punishment meted out to him for criticizing Prime Minister Modi. In a Time magazine article that came out in May 2019, Atish had tore into Modi's Hindutva politics. The headline of that piece was India's divider in chief. BJP obviously didn't take kindly to the piece. टाइम मैगजीन में देखा है बंधु उसका लेखक कौन है उसका लेखक है एक पाकिस्तानी नागरिक एक पाकिस्तानी नागरिक मोदी जी को डिवाइडर कहता है और राहुल गांधी उसको ट्वीट करते हैं I caught up with Atish on Skype to discuss the issue of his citizenship his connection with India and all the criticism that has come his way It's been about 3 weeks uh, since the news of the Indian government cancelling your OCI card hit you What have the past 3 weeks been like for you emotionally where are you at emotionally what are the sort of range of feelings that you felt over the past 3 weeks so in some respects i'd seen it coming because i'd received the notice uh in september but i have to say the first feeling was like a sense of uh of of shock at the kind of violence of it the fact that the government had been leaking to the press and that they were within seconds of the news breaking on twitter and uh tweeting out against me and that they canceled the document on twitter which i felt like there was a kind of trumpian brutality to that 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 sort of like even though i was expecting it i was kind of shocked okay and and then like i have to say like definitely a feeling of sadness because uh i had to actually hand the document in last week hmm. and you know it was there's no way that you can go through a ceremony like that of going to the consulate and surrendering your mm-hmm. one the one thing that gives you status in india and that you've kind of always almost taken as a sort of dual nationality or taken as like being your 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 sort of legal connection to a place like india which for me obviously there's mm-hmm. so many emotional ties i couldn't have done something like that without feeling like a sense of sadness or a sense of goodbye mm-hmm. i've also felt uh, a degree of anger and uh, i feel like like my blood is up a little bit like before mm. there was a kind of sense of resignation and i was like okay this is happening i'll walk away i'll go off to another life i'll like accept, almost mm. acceptance and then when it happened and uh i suddenly like the mood changed and i was like no 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 i will fight these guys i will, I, will, i will wait it out i'll fight it in every legal channel that i have but i'll also mm. fight it in the court of public opinion and i'll make it known that that what what this government is about that they shouldn't i i felt a very strong sense that mr modi and mr shah should not be able to, if if they should not be able to have a double image they shouldn't be able to play the statesman abroad and the despot at home i was like i will do what i can to expose these guys so you've got quite a lot of support from the international community you've had writers write in support of you you've had pen come out support you cpj come out support you uh, have you been sort of like support, you said support us uh, to stop you manisha support in india as well you know mm, it's yeah. one thing for the hindu to write an editorial it's one thing for the indian express to write an editorial or the deccan chronicle but for the times of india yeah. most a political yeah. paper in the world to come out 
with an editorial and be like, what the fuck is going on? Like yeah. that. For me, it's like 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 a deeper level of support. Yeah, and the, yeah, and Times is not known to sort of take these stances, and they're, they're yeah, you, like you said, they're not somebody who'd really take on the government for things uh, that they do. But uh, because but you then, and, and hmm. everyone could recognize the malice in it, they could see that this was not some silly procedural thing that the government was trying to make it seem. Like yeah, they were. They could see that what they were doing was basically weaponizing immigration laws. But because you said that you want to sort of not let Modi and Shah have this sort of dual image. Have you been, you know, apart from speaking for the press, have you been sort of, is this something that you think of now actively, that you need to sort of speak to more people, talk about the government, talk about what it's up to, whether through your journalism or your writing or through conferences? Is this something that you're actively planning to sort of do? Absolutely. I mean, the reason I'm speaking to you, the reason I've written about it, the reason that I have this, uh, I have a documentary film coming out, which basically deals with the rise of Modi through Muslim eyes. But it also deals with now, because suddenly the presenter can no longer go back to the country to finish the film. It also deals with my situation. And I wouldn't, if it was the situation, if I saw it as a situation of one individual, if I didn't see in it uh, a shade of what's happening, the unconstitutionality of what's happening in Kashmir or the CAB or the uh, the NRC, if I didn't see a pattern, if I didn't see that very soon after what they did to me, they went after Meta Patkar in a different yeah. way. Again, like weaponizing laws to go after critics, uh, I, I probably wouldn't pursue it. Hmm. But I think it's important to pursue because this is this is the character hmm. of this, I want to say government, I almost said regime. <laughs> so I want to I want to take you back to 2014 uh, to a piece that you wrote for the Open and you were reporting from Banaras back then and uh, there's a, I think this was your last dispatch from Banaras and you say that uh, in the piece that I have sympathy for Modi uh, and if I wish to see him succeed it's because of my sympathy for the people who support him uh, you say that it's this India clear-headed restless hungry that has energized this election it is the India that some of us have been waiting to see come into being it is also my concern for this India that has prejudiced my view of this election so I mm. I just want you to go back to that time where yeah. uh, you know you were you you aren't someone who immediately you'd call a dissident because some of your reporting back then was, if not optimistic, it was sort of um, willing to give Modi a chance. Let's let's put right. it like that. So what were you seeing back then? Um, sure. And uh, how do you well, view one, it today? One, one thing was that one thing that I found very moving about that election, and I still maintain that it was an election of hope. There may have been like menacing things in the wings. There may have been all of this stuff, but what I do feel very strongly is that I, I would see people constantly correct hmm. journalists, reporters, when they would drive home this, oh, tell us about the temple, tell us about communalism, tell us about Hindu Rashtra, and they would always stop them and say, listen, we're voting for him because we think he's going to bring prosperity, we think he's going to bring uh, Vikas. And I thought, I thought, well, a man like this with this kind of background, hmm. If he's making the right noises, one has. To, firstly, I thought that there was a kind of inevitability that someone like this would emerge. But more than that, I thought we—he has to be. We have to follow this arc. We have to see what this kind of. If this man has the potential for the kind of growth that he seems to be hinting at, he should be allowed to 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 show that. I have to say, 
that obviously it was a bitter disappointment because mm. he was a wrecking ball to the economy. And as soon as that side of it didn't work, and I think his limitations mm. were too great. I think he didn't know what he was meant to do. But w when that didn't work, all the bad stuff came pouring out in, in double measure. And um, and so so I, I, I'm the first to admit to you that, mm. that I misjudged it or I, you know, I was not perhaps grave enough in my reservations. But I will say that at the same time, I had before he was elected, I'd published a novel called The Way Things Were. And for yeah. a writer, that that's almost a deeper testament. And it is about somebody, about a Sanskritist who has to leave India because his tradition is is sort of spoiled by nationalism. It's it's weaponized or it's it's turned into something toxic mm. and, and the Sanskritist has to leave the country. And so so I was dealing with many different moods at the same time. And when one is walking in a political vein, one is not necessarily evoking or invoking, rather, the deepest level of one's like uh, cultural judgments or, you mm -hmm. know, of analysis. And so, so to, I mean, I, it sounds like a weak defense, but what I'm yeah. saying is that there were many different things going on at that point. Hmm. I don't know. So way things were was before the elections. Yeah, I thought it was after for some reason. Okay, okay. So yeah, oh yeah, because that book really deals with the sort of the rise of the right and the sort of cultural imposition that may bring. So yeah, Ex was, exactly. Yeah. I, I, and I, I very much had this sense you know, that it's the, interesting the kind of world that Mr. Modi would bring into being would be a world in which I was not welcome in India. And so even on a personal level, my my willingness to have a life in America or to, to sort of settle elsewhere. I would never have done that in that decade before when I was really committed to being in India. And I, I kind of on a personal level, I think I saw that, that this was not a society where I would be welcome and I was open to being somewhere else in a, in a way that I would never have been before. So uh, it's interesting you say that because in the same piece you also talk about, you say that, you know, you say that Modi shouldn't go the Erdogan way and you say that, uh, you know, you wouldn't want India to become a place where anyone with a harsh word to say about the prime minister will be driven out of town. And right. <laughs> that's exactly that's. So I, I yeah, it's from your writing, it did seem like you were kind of at least aware of what it could mean, but you were hoping that it wouldn't. It almost seems like you were hoping that your fears about the person would not come true. And right. a lot and, of your journalism was... I'd seen that was... rise of Erdogan, sorry mm. to interrupt you, but yeah. I'd seen that and I'd seen, that, seen the direction that it had taken. And I guess what I hoped was that since India was so unique mm. in the history of d developing countries, that it had this tradition that even places like Spain and Greece had not had in the 20th century, that there was this kind of unbroken arc of democracy and of institutions and that there was India had a special place in the history of the world that maybe India's sort of demagogue or India's answer to now all these leaders would also be different and that Indian institutions would hold and um, and, and, a, and a man like this would could be contained. So in this uh, piece, you describe a Modi supporter as clear-headed, restless and hungry. <laughs> and you've had a lot of run-ins with Modi supporters on internet at least. How would you, three words that you'd used to describe a Modi supporter today? Do you, do you still view them as clear-headed, restless and hungry? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel that uh, actually that a lot of the kind of hope that they put in him has sort of curdled. And I would really see them much more as, as desperate, toxic 
and, and, and ready to turn their disappointment against the world. Mm. But- and also to separate, like, you know, the, I don't mean the kind of Modi supporter we see on Twitter. At that time, too, I meant somebody on the ground who had hopes of Mr. Modi, mm. you know, which is still, which is kind of a different person yeah. from the Twitter from the Twitterverse, you know, when you yeah, when yeah, you yeah, yeah. encounter that person who is a young man who has aspirations or a young woman who's who who wants things to go well in a certain way and is 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 kind of part of the energy of India that that sort of restlessness which even then had the possibility to turn to turn sour could also be a it could be quite a moving thing, you know, and it it was it was hard as a writer, to, uh, an Indian writer, to not feel a sensitivity towards it. I'm gonna throw at you some of the criticisms that have come your way since the cancellation of your card, and um, I, I'd like you to tackle them. And if if you think they're too personal, then feel free to not tackle them. <laughs> but no, nothing's too personal. You can throw anything you like my way. <laughs> so, uh, so I, uh, you know, I tweeted one of your uh, your article that you wrote in the time right after the cancellation. And I think you mentioned in that that you've always viewed your mother as your sole legal guardian and that's it's her identity that you took after. And I got some responses to that saying that if that is so, why is he Tasir? And why not right. sing? So that so do you want to tackle that? Why why yeah, did you sure. I mean firstly like kind of an odd thing to say because no who chooses their own name? Hmm. So like well let's say right in the beginning that it was my mother who gave me that name. My sense was that she gave it to me to protect me because it it was bad enough to not have a father, but hmm. to be, I suppose, a love child or a illegitimate child, a bastard if one wanted to be cruel. Like it was an added layer of uh, of social difficulty. And I think that my mother would have wanted to spend most of the eighties and early nineties as I was growing up trying to bring a veneer of respectability to what was basically a kind of scandalous relationship. So that was probably why she gave me his name and why there was a kind of, why one would, why there was a sort of pretense that what had really been a love affair was, uh, was something more substantial. But, uh, but again, I mean, and then after a while, your name is your name, you know, it just feels odd at 18 to, to give up your name. Yeah. But that that was uh, that was the reason. Another thing that's being brought up is your um, piece. The day I got my green card. Uh, mm. Now, this column you talk about uh, getting your American citizenship, and uh, you talk about finally being home and uh, having a feeling that you've never really had for any other country. And um, a lot of people have used. I've, I've sort of thrown that article back at you to say that. Well, I mean, your love for your country was never really real or that it wasn't really something that mattered to you too much because you here's your piece where you're rejoicing your, you know, green card. And almost kind of saying that, that this country is special to you in a way that uh, India never was. So I just want you to, you know, tackle that for us. And then I have a so, few questions on that. So now. let me respond in this way, which is that, that, you know, firstly, like since then, I've written a book like The Twice Born, which is steep in my, in my love of India. And that piece really for me was dealing more with national cultures. Hmm. In India, I suppose I've always made a separation. Probably a lot of people make this separation between the reality of the modern Indian state and obviously much deeper reservoir of affection and, and belonging, which is related to Indian culture stretching back, you know, thousands of years. And so that, that this, this, I guess what I was talking about, and by the way, for those people who think I was concealing my I, whatever 
uh, identity. I mentioned that I have a PIO card in that piece. And I Hmm. mentioned this whole story of my father's relationship to Pakistan, his origins and stuff. Hmm. And I guess what I was discussing in, in that was really, it was a piece about getting a green card. And it was discussing these like the the gap between documents associated with a nation state and belonging in a deeper sense. And in America, for me, that relationship is much closer. Mm. Like when you get an American passport, when you're born in America, that means something in America the way it never means the same thing in Britain or or India or Pakistan. There, in those countries, people are always looking for some deeper level of identity. So like an Indian Muslim mm. is never accepted on face value and say they're always people are always looking at you to say, are you part of this deeper belonging? Mm. And I guess the relief that I felt in America, which I still feel, is that once you get the piece of paper, the piece of paper actually matters. Is if that anything, true? What I, if anything... It's, this has even been this has been borne out even more truly by my experience recently, mm-hmm. where someone has snatched my piece of paper in India. You know, <laughs> they've mm-hmm. told me that it doesn't matter a jot. Mm-hmm. And uh, in America, there is a safety about that legal document that is that is quite real. And so that was really the the deeper vibrations of what that piece was about. It was not saying that oh, India, where I've lived all my life and which I've written about and continue to write about suddenly doesn't matter to me. Yeah, but I think it's also possible to like hate a country for many things and then also have a deep relationship with it. I think a lot of us do. We do have moments where we're completely frustrated with India and we we find it to be, you know, and you have really not very affectionate thoughts about your country, but still love it. Is that something that was that also something that you were trying to explore? Absolutely. And, and certainly like on the level where uh, like India expresses itself in the, in the culture of, an, of, of the, the modern Indian state, there would be many, many people who would experience that sense of, of hating it on one level and yet being tied to it or loving it like on a much deeper level. And, and actually, to, just to, take, to extend your point, not just on the level of the nation state, Indian culture, Indian religion, as much as it has the a power to kind of evoke wonder and affection and love, there are many things that are venal and horrible about it. And I suppose you only you only write in that way about your place if you are in some ways kind of attached to it. You know, mm. you wouldn't you, you don't write with that much urgency or with that much at stake if you didn't care, you know? So what are the aspects of India that you that you uh hate and what are the aspects of India that you love <laughs> if you were to like kind of revisit things that you were going through when you were talking about your green card or, or you know feeling at home what are the things that draw you to India and what are the things that make you feel okay this is probably where I don't belong well you know in a very personal way I, I, I've said that for instance one of the things that I had always loved about India was that I felt that a certain kind of big heartedness, which in my life had expressed itself very much through the figure of my grandparents, who were not extremely westernized. They were part of an older generation and they were confronted with the scandal of my parents' relationship. And many people could have responded in a very like um, in a very narrow, very vindictive way. And they responded with nothing but like love and, and, and an openness and a feeling of like making me know that this was my family, this was my country. And it may sound like that was an individual example, but 
I've always felt that that big-heartedness has been part of the Indian character. In fact, one of the things that really upset me recently was this story of Feroz Khan at BHU. And, oh, you know, yeah. because of the twice-born, I've, I've been very familiar with the Sanskrit department at BHU. And I thought, here's this man, and his father would sing bhajans, and he learned Sanskrit well enough to become a professor at BHU. And he was not operating out of some Western sense of openness and liberality. He was operating out of a very Indian sense hmm. of what syncretic culture meant, what India on its... on on the kind of on its deepest level that, that ability that it had to throw up these amazing combinations to kind of to 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 produce hybrid culture in this way and in the new india or in this india that that you know kind of mr modi and shah would like to see come into being a man like that is who is working within tradition has suddenly been forced out he's suddenly confronted with black-heartedness with mean-spiritedness He's confronted with an, with an India where he's not welcome. And so you see almost like in that one example, both sides of what I love about India and also what I, what I find absolutely horrible, you know. And, and, and I think that, that that culture that we have of the possibility of the lynch mob, of the possibility of this society that has produced the, probably some of the deepest levels of assimilation known in history can also turn against you, can also drive you out, can, where this, this thing is simmering away under the surface. And, um, and even with this experience that I've had recently, as much as there's been support, hmm. there's also been a lot of like ugly schadenfreude, people kind of delighting in my situation. And I feel like that, that is something that, that it's a yeah, very self-wounding part of our, of our character. You know, if you think that it's a good thing, that an Indian writer like myself can't return home. You know, you should really like, you should really worry about yourself. In fact, even some quarters of the liberal set have sort of said that, okay, you've been taken down by the forces that you uh, cheered for or for the forces that you felt were great for India. And so, you know, uh, too bad. Did you encounter that? Or, and how, do you, how do you respond, how did you earlier, respond like, to that? I don't think that that's, that's a, a very fair assessment of my mm. work. But more than that, like, even if it was true, even if I thought that something good would come of this guy, and by the way, the minute really bad signs started to appear almost at the exact moment of the Akhlaq lynching, mm. I, I took a very resolute position. I completely parted ways yeah. with whatever belief that I had before. And, and I've, I've, I've maintained that throughout. So this, this, yeah, this business of delighting in the misfortune of others, like it's, mm. it's firstly a stupid thing to do because in the end, like you have to live in this place, you know, and if it's changing in these ways, you'll be affected by that too. But also because like it's, 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 a, it's an emotion that, that has historically been part of, the, of our behavior and it's something that we, I think we should try to expunge. Another criticism that's come your way is, and this is, I mean, it's not really criticism, but it's, uh, I don't know if you read the Asia Times piece on uh, your privilege. And so there are a lot of people who've said that, you know, uh, you're a privileged person and your mother's someone who's privileged. She's had access to politicians. She supported Modi and Shah. And there's a sort of expectation that because, um, you know, we've been supportive, we deserve better. Or that, or that this question of you, your card being taken away is not that important because, well, 
you know you left india anyway and you were never really an indian citizen and you've delighted so to speak in your american citizenship and that so i but but for you you've said that so this there, was there are like a couple mm, of different things mm, going on firstly mm, i'm not an american citizen i'm a mm, green card green holder card because holder. of my husband mm. but i was always i was born a british citizen yeah. when i was 18 i very much my mother and i one of the things that i was very much seriously considering was was taking indian citizenship because never in a million years did i dream that i would not be living in india mm. it was every it's the country where i've lived most of my life it's where i returned after college and the only reason i didn't take it at that point was because th- this thing had come into being and it seemed very much like it didn't have to be an either or situation and so i took advantage of something that the government was offering i don't think that that's like a wildly like mm. cynical privileged thing entitled thing to do i mean it was a scheme that the government offered and we should we should not like create these like binaries where mm. you're like oh my god you if you don't take indian citizenship you don't love <laughs> india like like yeah. that's a that's a i mean the government was actively welcoming people with a connection to india i had an obvious connection to india and i took advantage of the government scheme mm. but but more importantly like this business of like you know are we really getting onto the level of class warfare where we say like because somebody is privileged you know it doesn't matter that they can't return home it doesn't matter mm. that they can't see their like mother and grandmother it doesn't matter that they can't be with their concerns as a writer i mean mm. it's it's a really crazy thing to say and 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 to ask me at this point now when you've seen that the government has shown obvious malice towards me to become an indian citizen and you know i have in a much more serious situation which is that like i'm married in america to a man and i don't know if ryan would be okay for me to be for my one citizenship to be that of a country which doesn't recognize our marriage and so there are many there are many things that have come subsequently hmm. but but i just no, find actually, this line that's a very important attack, point like, that it's, it's, it's a you very, bring up hmm. it's 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 a sort of level of class warfare that should give us all pause you know yeah and i think i mean personally i i found some of those questions a bit stifling also because uh, you know there was also the question of oh but uh, how is he contributing to the country or that you have like um, sudha bhardwaj who came back and worked in india or you had a john dries who comes back and works in calcutta i i find that a bit and i and I, I, sh- I i came i came back right after college and was in india till just the other day mm. i it's only because of marriage that uh, like 3 or 4 mm. years ago that i left india every one of my books has been steeped in indian concerns like what what mm. what unless you believe that writers have no contribution exactly. it's a bit insane to say that like i haven't contributed to india yeah and i think that's why i find it a bit stifling for especially for a writer or a journalist to have that thrown at you and that happens quite often like what exactly are you doing for your country but i think what he's trying to emphasize is that this is not a battle that we should concern ourselves with that india has other concerns but you've also said that you're not looking at this as your own battle you're seeing a pattern here uh where i think i think there's a very clear pattern mm. and, and then the, I, I, you somehow look at this in the same way as you look at nrc or that something like this could start happening to other people where laws are weaponized to sort of you know use it against people who are critical i think there's a very there's a very clear pattern it's it's what i see happening is a very conscious very unconstitutional attempt to make the idea of being indian correspond with being hindu and that's playing out in various ways and um i don't think that like i don't think that my my own situation is that like isolated and if we if it wasn't linked to this other thing maybe we we could set it aside but but 
I mean, it's it's so it's so interesting that almost within a few days after me, they should go off. I don't I, I haven't been a supporter of Meda Patkar, but I think it's appalling what's happening to her. So I wanted to ask you, there's been a lot of confusion about your card and how you got it and what did you say in the form and all that. So I just was wondering if you could clear it up for our listeners. So you had a, a PIO card, right? Which right. then so, automatically... So which my mother applied for when I was in college. I was in college in America and my mother had gone habitually to the FRRO. Hmm. And when she went, as I was sort of like around the age of 18 or 19, whenever, it would have been 2000, I think. Hmm. And she would have gone and she, the only thing at contention is this application she made. And they said to her, Madam Ji, hmm. and she says, she said very clearly, I'm a single mother. I, this is my hmm. son. And she gave my birth certificate. So my father's name was on the card, etc. Hmm. What she didn't provide and she could never have provided hmm. was my father's citizenship document. And she claims she was never asked for it. And in some ways, she must be right, because if this document was so critical, if she was like concealing my father's identity, then why would they issue me the PIO? Hmm. So I don't know if it was a level of bureaucratic confusion, bureaucratic laxity. But the fact is that she provided what, the only documents she could have. And she, if, if, if they had said to her, listen, well, if you can't provide a citizenship document, we won't give you this thing. Hmm. Well, that, then fine, they would have been in the right. They obviously had a certain amount of latitude. And I feel like afterwards through and you know governments are entitled to do this like governments are not just like blotter jotter legalese mm. like any government could like look at a broader situation i'm not like i'm i've clearly had a public life in which i've been very open about my circumstances mm. if a government didn't want to go after me they could say listen there's some confusion with this could you come in let's find a way to resolve it a, lo- a lot of governments would would feel that that is something that they were A, within their power to do, and B, that if they had the power to grant an exemption, why not grant it to someone who's grown up in India all his life with a single mother and who's obviously rooted in India and has not been a Pakistani? So, like, we shouldn't, like, lose, I guess, what what is, what is that metaphor? Like, lose the trees for the forest or whatever. I mean, <laughs> what is happening here is something very clear. Hmm. And if there was... If it was simply a matter of a bureaucratic discrepancy, it could also be cleared up. But the government hasn't cho- chosen that route. And moreover, they've chosen a special route in which I'm blacklisted. So you'll notice that there's been quite a lot of public attention to what's happened. But I was in the consulate on Monday. And the consulate, as far as I know, neither the Home Ministry nor the Consul General has changed their original position that if my card was taken away on these grounds, I would be blacklisted and not able to get a normal visa for India. So this PIO card then turned into an OCI card, right? It just, right, for, yeah, which, for which I didn't even meet a person. It okay. was literally like a, a digital form, a mailing in, one thing, like I sent out one thing and got the other thing back. So she didn't really leave a blank column in the form order. She did put your father's name there, but she couldn't have provided the citizenship documents, obviously, because they weren't in touch. Right. And so how... Of course, a lot of the first thing about you, uh, the first mention or when you, I think people knew about, uh, you know, your father, but the first time that pe- you were really being called a Pakistani or that you've been associated with a Pakistani political family was as- after your Time magazine article. At that time, did you, I mean, did you just laugh it off or did you think that this is going to come back 
at me or this is going to be sort of taken up in a way that's going to effectively stop me from maybe entering india again was was it like not a, not, mm-hmm. not at all in fact the only thing i took seriously i i set aside the trolling the vandalizing the wikipedia page the amazon all of those things i was like forget forget that that's just part of having a thick hide and being and writing what you want and and as far as i was concerned i was not worried about that the only thing in fact i think there's an ndtv interview from that time where the only thing that worries me is that sambit patra has started to circulate this lie that i'm a pakistani and the prime minister has picked up the lie and if there's really anybody who should apologize it shouldn't be me he should apologize for having circulated a lie that i knew at that point would be very damaging to me. Hmm. So you, thought, you were aware either, at that time. You didn't find it. In a year it, of hostilities, hmm. either you're exposing me to violence, hmm. which could very well happen because like you make some, you call someone a Pakistani and you know how that goes down in 2019 in India. Hmm. And uh, I said and if not then then some form of harassment and literally like clockwork that came to a kind of fruition with with this uh, with this OCI business hmm. um which is which the consul general was very clear he's like it's coming straight from amit shah it's coming from the home ministry so it did scare you back then you didn't like brush it off as, as absolutely you know, i'm, I'm on record saying that it's the only thing that scared me coming back to your writerly life uh, you and and some of you know your time when you were doing actively doing journalism in india you uh, you've never really been very cozy with what is called you know the delhi's left liberal circle you did that really funny interview with yourself for the nervous breakdown <laughs> where you you know take a dig at the gatekeepers of delhi's intellectual scene mm. and so yeah and you know you had these literary sort of fights uh, that were also reported or not really fights but you know um, yeah and but what you do have a lot in common with these people now is a dislike for modi so right. do, you, do you see yourself do you a have you got any support from those quarters in india you know, and you see yourself wanting to sort of maybe be in the in circle now or try and re- reach out to sort of the people that you were earlier not very fond of or scoffed at it's an interesting question you see a i broader i have to alliance? say like there, there's <laughs> one thing that both in america and in india that i would say is part of the a little bit of the fairness of people on the left is that that when this happened to me someone who might have been kind of an ardent critic of mine like Mihir Sharma hmm. wrote a piece in my defense you know that guy Abhijit Ayer Mitra when he was arrested like people did come out hmm. to speak in his defense and and people have on my side too um and it is a strange situation you know you're like well like now that you're both opponents of what's happening are you kind of in the same say you know is it is your kind of a friend's enemy or whatever your friend or you know however that saying goes um but you know at the same time for me why the reason why i was a very strong critic of what what we describe as liberal left wing politics in india is because i think that that that's that old world that we were part of did fail us and continues to fail us and nothing is sort of more real evidence of it than the fact that like the the limitations that i saw in that society are borne out by the fact of the disarray that we see within the congress party the fact that once again rahul gandhi is going to be put before the people once again the sort of total intellectual philosophical like impoverishment of that other side is going to be like exposed and so it's you know as much as like 
as much as we can we can criticize this new populism, hmm. we should also know that there was a critique of our society that was implicit in it that we shouldn't ignore. You know, even in America, uh, as much as Trump is no solution, he did he did become the expression of a criticism that we should consider very seriously. And, and so, so, so these are the, they're, they're, you know, it's not as simple as saying like, ah, uh, like now I'm on this side and we'll all be friends. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's recognizing that, that, that both things can exist simultaneously. Um, what about as a writer? I, um, most of your books, like you said, they're steeped in India. Um, are you a little worried for the literary work that you do? Are you worried about, because you, you may not have access to India the way you did earlier? Uh, is that a worry for you? Also, I think sometimes for writers, I mean, at least this is what it's said that they kind of thrive in sort of when they're thrown, when their lives are thrown into chaos because that becomes material and they're kind of pushed. So, uh, how are you viewing this for yourself as a writer? Are you seeing this so, as an opportunity, or are you, are you worried about the work that you're doing? So, a couple of things. One is that we tend to romanticize the idea of exile, mm. and we we think of people like Nabokov and and what and that that exile was in some ways their making. But there's also a very sterile side of exile. There's a possibility that one could be in another country and be desperately homesick and thinking of another place all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and that it's, 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 not necessar- it's not necessary that that state is a creative state. And as a writer who's needed India more than a lot of my sort of coevals, I, I do sometimes worry that of the harm that could be done to me if I was deprived of my material or if I was deprived of, of this country that's nourished me in many ways. And, and one of the weird things like, which is, uh, you know, I have, a, I have a very strong connection to Indian myth and religion, to, uh, to, to Hindu India. And one of the things, my mother is here at the moment, one of the things like, the, almost the first thing I had her bring me was um, a Hindi version of the, of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana because I somehow like, I felt like a need to be close to some part of India now that the now that the idea of going back had been had been taken away from me and so I don't know to answer your question how it will play out creatively but I'm very aware that that it's it's that it's not it's not it's not necessary that it could be good for me and um and the the other thing that I, that I feel very much is this business that you know India, uh, you know, uh, Osip Mandelstam used to say that it, Russia is the only place where they love poets because you can be killed for being a poet, you know, that, 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 that there was this kind of, the literature mattered in a sort of, in almost a fundamental sort of way. In, um, in India, I feel like there's been a tendency to kill writers with neglect, you know, and, and it's not just the fact that people like, I feel like people like Salman Rushdie, Vikram Seth, that if they hadn't had this other world in which their talent could have been recognized, they would have been buried in India. But, you know, someone like V.S. Naipaul, who had come back, and he, I think he'd also wanted an OCI. And the, the BJP government told him, well, well, you know, do you have your papers? <laughs> do you have your grandfather's birth certificate? He's like, my whole work has been dedicated to the fact that we were sent as indentured servants to the, to the Caribbean. And, and so this business of failing one's writers hmm. and, and of kind of like of, of doing a disservice to the talent that comes out of India, I find that like 
it people should really worry about that side of things because it's it's you know it's not it's not good for the health of a country when people are when people who are invested in that country are driven away just one more question i want to ask you was sure. so today if say you wanted to come to india for a journalistic project or for a writing project can you apply for a visa and get it and come or i mean how is that or are you just barred what's no, your current what, status what right now no the consul general indicated to me was that if my oci was cancelled on the grounds that i had con- concealed material information that i had basically committed fraud hmm. that i would then be blacklisted and if i can actually send you this it's it's very clearly said on the home ministry website as well so as far as i know i've been told that i'm blacklisted okay so best of luck thank you so much thank you dear subscribers for tuning in and thanks a lot for your support as you all know at news laundry we don't depend on advertisements from either the government or corporations to sustain ourselves we depend on news consumers so thanks a lot for your support and do spread the word pay to keep news free all the news laundry podcasts are available on stitcher itunes and any other podcast platform please subscribe to news laundry help us keep news independent Catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport. Visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.